0: The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. It's February. The semester is bearing down on all of us. So I want to do something very simple and hopefully quite refreshing today. I want us to just take a few minutes and get a glimpse of God from Psalm 103. So take your Bibles and open up to Psalm chapter 103 and and instead of, just for the next few minutes, instead of being overwhelmed by reading and by papers and by quizzes and by whatever deadlines are looming in your life, I want you to hopefully be able to focus in and be overwhelmed by God instead. That's the goal. You with me? All right. Psalm 103 begins like this. Of David, bless Yahweh, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now let's pause there for a moment. The psalm gives us nothing more of its situation other than of David." So David wrote it. That's pretty much all we know, though. We don't know when he wrote it. We don't know why he wrote it. We don't know the circumstances behind him writing it. All we know is that it's of David. But I think that's better that we don't have some kind of historical tag to this psalm because then we're able to universally apply it no matter where we are at in our lives. Whatever you're going through, whatever is happening in your life right now, this psalm is for you because this psalm does not focus on you. It focuses on the Lord. David writes, Bless Yahweh, O my soul, all that is within me, bless his holy name. Now, what does that mean to bless Yahweh? We sing that song in church, we sing it here in chapel, but what does it mean? If you were to go through the Psalms, you might find that word bless used synonymously with other words like praise or words like worship. It can even mean something as simple as to bow or to kneel before someone. It's like when Jesus was born and the wise men came and they knelt before him and offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. They blessed Yahweh or blessed Jesus with their worship and praise, the text says. King David writes in this psalm, Bless Yahweh, O my soul, all that is within me, bless his holy name. How many of you would admit to talking to yourself on occasion? Wow, you have problems. Yeah. Well, that's what David's doing, right? He's talking to himself. He is urging his own soul, his own self, to bless the Lord with everything that is within him, with his whole heart, with every ounce of his being, to bless the Lord. In other words, what David's saying is, with everything that I've got, with all that I am, I have to, I am impelled to worship our Lord. Why? Well, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now, what are the benefits of God exactly? Well, the first thing David does in this psalm is in verses three to five, he lists the benefits to himself personally. Benefits to his soul specifically. What has God done for David? Look at verses three to five. David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits. And then verse three, Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And just... Yeah, I mean, so just so you know, I picked this psalm many weeks ago. Um, that metaphor, we might need to adapt it a little bit. We'll have to see. But in just a few verses, we have six participles that describe God. A participle, as you may know, is a verbal noun. These are not descriptions so much of God's works, even though our English translations sometimes bring them forward like that. But these are words that describe, him, that describe God himself as characterized by his works. And there's a big difference in that. I don't want to get lost. Let me give you a little illustration because I think this is a point worth making at this part of the psalm. If I said the phrase, he who should not be named, who would I be talking about? Yeah, Lord Voldemort, the villain from the Harry Potter series. Now, that was a trick. I wanted to figure out which of you needs Jesus because you read Harry Potter, right? So, (laughs) sinner, 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 sinner all around here. But throughout this series, Voldemort is this feared villain, people tell me, uh, that (laughs) he's so feared that his, his name should not even be spoken out loud, right? Instead of speaking his name, we describe him based on who he is or who he is according to how we react towards him. He who should not be named. It's not Voldemort whose name we shouldn't speak out loud. It's the difference between a description of his character and his character as a whole. The way it's worded, it's not that there's something freaky about the name itself. It's that his character as a whole is so reprehensible and evil that we shouldn't even talk about it if we are among decent people. Now that's not exactly a participle, but it's close enough. Here's a literal translation of what I just read, those few verses from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits, forgiver of all your iniquity, healer of all your diseases, redeemer of your life from the pit, crowner of you, with steadfast love and mercies, satisfier of good, worker of righteousness. Do you see the difference? It's not God who forgives, God who heals, God who redeems. It's God the forgiver, God the healer, God the redeemer. That's our God. Our God himself is the benefit that David is talking about. He has forgiven so many times in so many ways that we might as well call him the forgiver. These aren't things that that God can remove and set aside and still be himself. He cannot take a day off of forgiveness and still be the same God. He cannot stop being your ultimate satisfaction. Otherwise, he would not be himself. Think through these participles here. Forgiver of all your iniquity. If that's all we had, we could stop right there and that would be enough, wouldn't it? Forgiver of all your iniquity. You cannot say that of any other person in your life, including yourself. I don't care how forgiving a person you are. I, I consider myself a very forgiving person unless it's with my students. But I'm, I usually, in my life, just a very forgiving person. I can let things go quite easily. I am not a forgiver of all iniquity, though. There are those nagging things that I sometimes have a hard time letting go of. Maybe that's the same thing with you. Maybe that, that one nagging thing that you hold against your parents that one mistake that you haven't let go of from that friend that betrayed you long ago, that one professor who gave you a C when you thought you deserved an A, you, you are not a perfect forgiver. But the text goes even beyond that because the text doesn't even say forgiver of your iniquities. Notice how it's singular. Iniquity. It's as if your whole entire life is an offense to God. If God is forgiver, you are iniquity. Now, if that's offensive to you, I don't care. (laughs) Because I think you know this by now. It doesn't matter what other people think of you, but when we are matched up against what God thinks of us, I mean, we are terrible. At least when we match ourselves up with the standard that God has set for us. That's the terrible truth about humanity. We are liars. We are haters. We are deceivers. Our mouths are filled with cursing and gossip, we have tempers, we have lusts, we have sin in our heart, we are iniquity. And God is forgiver. Praise God. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. The Bible says, and you know these verses, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For us, that means that when he died, it was the penalty that we deserve because of our iniquity, because of our sin. Our sin is so bad that it's enough to send us to hell in separation from God for all of eternity. And yet, Jesus took that penalty upon his shoulders in his righteousness, died in your place, then rose again to life three days later, defeating sin and death. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. All your sin, all your iniquity, the text says, he forgives. That thing that you did when you were 13 years old and no one else knows about it except for that other person that you did it with, God is forgiver. Those terrible thoughts that you think that you wish that you could erase from your mind because they reveal the depth of your depravity, God is your forgiver. That crime you did that got you locked up all those years ago, you just wish would be erased from your record, God is your forgiver. He can wash you whiter than snow but we've got to put our faith in Christ. Ask him for that forgiveness. And not only that, but the text says he is healer of all your diseases. Now I thought about this and I wondered, you know, what what does this mean? If I got cancer and I give my life to Jesus this morning, will will my cancer be gone? And that's what the puffy-haired guy says on TV on Sunday mornings, right? But maybe not what scripture says. A couple things we have to remember here. In this section, David is expressing God's personal benefits to himself. These are not always universally applicable, though many of them are. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then he begins to talk to his soul about the benefits God has given him personally. The other thing we have to remember is that some of these promises find their ultimate fulfillment in the future. The Bible promises that one day we will get glorified bodies free of waste and disease. Though God is powerful enough to heal all our diseases right here, he doesn't necessarily always choose to do so on this side of heaven. Sometimes there is more to be gained for God's glory in your suffering than in your healing. Sometimes we don't understand why we're in this pit of despair, but it's for God's glory. In fact, the next participle says that he is redeemer of your life from the pit. Whenever I read the pit, I think of like the pit of despair from the princess bride, right? And that might not be too bad of an analogy either. It's a a metaphor of the grave, a place where you do not normally return. David is saying that God can reach into the deepest, darkest times of your life and redeem you from even those. His healing and his forgiveness is so powerful that even in your darkest times, your suicidal times, God is able to scrape your life from the bottom of that barrel and make it something beautiful and amazing. You don't know, believe me? Ask David himself. David was a shepherd who became a king. David was hunted by the law before he was enforcing the law. David's life was redeemed from murder, polygamy, adultery, pride. God blessed him by granting him the ability to prepare the temple itself for God's dwelling. He's remembered as Israel's greatest king despite the sin in his life. God redeemed him from the pit. And God is your redeemer as well. The Bible says God is a crowner of steadfast love and mercies. Now think about this. If David wrote this, David is thinking about his crown perhaps as he's saying this. What does God crown us with? This is a kingly metaphor. God treats us as kings and queens, I suppose, only instead of a scepter and instead of a kingdom, he gives us steadfast love and mercy. Covenant love and mercies beyond our imagination. But if he's giving you the crown, that tells me that he is still the sovereign. Bless Yahweh, oh my soul. The text says that he is the satisfier with good so that your youth is renewed like a bird's. (laughs) Again, might need to adapt that metaphor just a bit. This is a tricky little phrase, though, in the Hebrew language. The King James Version, I think, gets it right here by translating it very literally, which says, He is the satisfier of thy mouth with good things. I don't know about you, but no one in my family sits around the table at night and fills their mouth with terrible tasting trash. I mean, normally we delight ourselves in great food. Last night, I was with a couple of friends, actually um, roommates from here, when way back when. Like, we got together with people we haven't seen in a while. It was a great time. And we had this slow-cooked, roasted pork But It was delicious. We had this venison chili. Oh, it was so good. And my wife made this um, uh, fruit pizza with, I don't even know what was in it or on it, but I ate so much of it. I mean, we satisfied our mouth with good things. And David is using that as a metaphor and saying that is what God does for you. He is the satisfier of all good things for you so that your youth can be renewed. Now, from here, he begins to reflect on not just God's benefits to us individually, but God's benefits to others collectively. Look at verses 6 to 8. He says, Yahweh works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Yahweh is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So he says, God is a worker of righteousness and justice for the oppressed justice might be better translated judgments here. It means God does not let sin go unpunished. He hears the cries of the oppressed in the land and he does something about it. Isn't that a great thing in our day? You you look at the news, you see oppression everywhere. The middle class feels like they're oppressed because of taxes. People of color feel marginalized by institutional oppression. Immigrants feel marginalized by our government. I mean, everybody is yelling about something, feeling oppressed, whether right or wrong. Let me tell you something. The hope of our nation is not in Donald Trump's re-election. It's not in Governor DeSantis getting on the ballot. It's not in Joe Biden or his nominees. It is in Jesus Christ. The hope of this nation is in Christ because he is the only one who truly hears the cries of every oppressed out there and does something about it. What a beautiful picture of our God. I mean, when we think about oppression, we have to realize David's not just talking about social injustices either. The effects of our sin leads us to be those who are oppressed. We are oppressed by sin and cannot Break free from that without the help of our God. Verses 7 to 8 tell us that God is forgiver, true satisfaction, one who looks out for those who are oppressed. And we know this is true because of how God acted in the past. David here gives the example of Moses and the Israelites. God redeemed them from cruel oppression. Their babies were being systematically slaughtered. Their men were being put to the work and, and enslaved. God stepped in and redeemed them. And then what did they do? They sinned against God. And then he stepped in and forgave them. And that was the beginning of a beautiful relationship with Israel. Verse 8, we even have this quote from Exodus chapter 34. Almost word for word, lifted from Exodus 34 and put right here. God's self-proclamation. A description that he gives to Moses and to the Israelites so that they will know who he is. Do you remember when God gave that description to the Israelites? Exodus 34 is right on the heels of the golden calf story. Israel falls into this awful, awful sin, sin that should have brought judgment down upon them, sin that should have wiped them away as a nation, that God could have killed every one of them in judgment. And yet instead he says, I'm going to redeem you. I'll forgive you. He's a God of redemption. He is a God of forgiveness, a God of compassion, slow to anger. And then David gives us these other Statements about God, four negative statements that all kind of equal positive things. Look at verses 9 and 10. David says of God, He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Praise God for that. Right on the heels of this Exodus 34 quote, we see what that is and what that looks like. All four of these statements pretty much amount to the same thing. He's not always going to chide, chide is a legal term. It's, it's like go to law or to contend with somebody. The idea here is that God is not going to act as your prosecutor forever. Our relationship with him fundamentally changes at our salvation. He is no longer our prosecutor, but our defender. He will not always chide. He will not always keep his anger forever. He, he won't deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. And again, you know the verses. The Bible tells us that the consequences, the wages of our sin is what? Death. And this eternal death, this separation from God and eternity in hell, we don't get it when we come to know Christ as our Savior. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. Praise God. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. We do not deserve what God has given us. What else can we learn about this great God? Well, next, David gives us three similes that describe Yahweh further. Verses 11 to 13. He says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Think about those similes for a moment. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great or so strong is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. If you piled God's love upon God's love upon God's love upon God's love and just kept on going, how high would it reach? It would just keep on going. I don't know how high you've ever been. I skydived one time when I was 30, my 30th birthday. My wife and I went skydiving. And uh, we should have known something was up because they wouldn't take us in the same plane at the same time. Um, the plane crash-landed a week later on the, uh, I think it was a turnpike in New Jersey over here. But it was this rickety little thing that took us about as high as this little tiny plane could go. And we went one by one. And I remember being way up there and kind of looking out over the Jersey Shore and you could just see like everything. It was a beautiful clear day, perfect day to jump out of an airplane. And, <laughs> And I look back at that and I'm like, you know, you think about the the height that you're at and then the craziness of what you're just about to do. That height is nothing compared with God's love. I could have doubled that, quadrupled that, kept on going up and up and up until I reached the moon and beyond and I still would not reach the end of where God's love stops. He says, as far as the east meets the west, he removes our transgressions. The east doesn't meet the west. It's like he takes it and throws it this way and that way, and you'll never, ever see it again. How many of you have, like, a younger brother or sister? Yeah, I remember I have uh, two very young brothers and sisters. I have one that's, that's two years younger than me, and then we had two adopted um, siblings in my family. And I remember when they were little kids, you know, we would ask, How much, do, you, do you love me? And, and they would say, I love you this much, right? This much. I love you as far as east meets west, God is saying. God entirely removes our sin from us. He no longer chides. What a wonderful God. Third simile, he uses as a comparison as a father showing compassion to his son, so God has shown compassion to us. I don't know if this simile sits with you or not, depending on who your dad was. But think of it in comparison to God as our father. He loves you as your dad ought to have loved you. As a father shows compassion. In other words, uh, I, I'm a dad of four kids, and, and if I punished my kids to the extent that they deserved every time they did something, I mean, they'd be in forever timeout. We would just have a permanent chair for them to sit in that they'd never get off because they're wicked little sinners. <laughs> and yet, I have compassion on them. And what's weird here is that that word "compassion" in this verse is actually a word that's related etymologically to the word for "womb, like the kind of compassion a mother has for her unborn child. That's the kind of compassion that God shows you as your father. What a wonderful God. Bless Yahweh, O oh my soul. Now why does God show us this compassion? The reason is very simple. He created you, and He loves you. Look at verses 14 to 16. David goes on and he says, For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. He knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. That's a direct callback to Genesis 1 and 2, the creation narrative. It's a way of saying, God knows you because he created you. He made you from the dust. He created Adam, and from the and to the dust we will one day return. We're compared to a flower, flourishing then passing away very quickly. You know what tomorrow is, right? Valentine's Day. Love is in the air. I I learned something about my wife many years ago. Calm yourselves down, please. I mean, focus. All right. I learned something about my wife many years ago. Um, I. I don't get her flowers very often because my wife is a killer of all things green. Um, She is a plant murderer. I don't know how else to describe it. She has this fine ability to just annihilate any sort of plant in our house, and she knows it. She approved of me saying these things. I remember one time I I sprung and got these beautiful flowers, I mean like expensive flowers, like not just rose flowers, like expensive flowers and they were really nice and within one week, these things were like crawling out of the pot begging for water. It was, it was horrifying to watch this happen to these expensive flowers that I bought her. But that's our life. In the blink of an eye, it's gonna be done. Where does that time go? I, as a pastor for many years, I was at the deathbed of many different people And never once did I stand beside someone on their deathbed and they said, man, that took a long time, this life. (laughs) Time just crawled by these years. I mean, I felt like I had extra years I had no idea what to do with. No one has ever said that. What you hear people say are things like this. I wish I made more time or more out of the time that God has given me. It went by too fast. I wasted too much of it. Students, make the most of the time because the days are evil. Be careful not to waste your time on video games and social media and things that have no eternal value because your time is so short. Hobbies are good, but they're not eternal. Our life goes by like that. Now look at how David contrasts the temporality of our life with the eternality of God's love. Look at verses 17 and 18. Keep in mind what he just said. Our life is like grass. It will die in an instant. And then right from there, verse 17, but the steadfast love of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. We are temporary. Yahweh's love for you is forever. It extends beyond even our own lifetimes. It, it, it goes beyond even our sons' sons and their sons' sons, on and on and on. We, we fade out and we die, but the one constant in our life is that he remains and he loves you. These everlasting effects of his love are particularly extended towards those who fear him, it says here. Now, what does that mean to fear God? This is the third time in this psalm that that phrase has been used, to fear God. In verse 11, we're told that his steadfast love is toward those who fear him. Two verses after that, we are told that God shows compassion on those who fear him. So what does that mean? Are we scared of God the same way that my kids are scared of the dark? Are we scared of God the same way that my dog is scared of ducks? (laughs) Don't laugh. That's embarrassing. She's a wimp. The idea of fearing God is explained here in verse 18. You see the parallel thoughts. God-fearers are those who keep his covenant. God-fearers are those who remember and do God's will. You demonstrate your fear of God by your obedience to him. You see those things connected all the time in scripture. What does it mean to fear God? It means you are reverently obedient to his will. To fear God is to know him and to live according to what he said to do. Yet, God is sovereign, he loves us. When we think about what it means to fear him, it's not just that we're terrified of him, we have this beautiful relationship with him, with the God of the universe and his jurisdiction stretches out over this whole world and beyond. Look at verse 19. He says, Yahweh has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. That's the God who loves you. Tomorrow, maybe someone will come up to you and tell you, I love you. They'll send you a little gram thing or whatever those are, right? Those singing things. They'll give you a, 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 a card with... Love words in it, or maybe a flower. Maybe they'll do what I did when I was a student. I used to, when I started dating my wife, for like the first month that we were, in, we were dating, I got her one rose. And the second month, I got her two roses. And the third month, I got her three roses. And then it got, it got more expensive to buy them individually. So I would buy a dozen at a time. And like if it was a nine month, I would buy a dozen and I'd take three and leave them on other people's cars with the words, thinking of you. And, uh, <laughs> Just a, it was just a great, it was a great thing to do. Maybe, maybe you'll get something like that tomorrow. Thinking of you, I love you, right? But, but to get those words from a person is one thing. To hear those words from the omnipotent, sovereign God of this universe is totally other. God, God, loves you. What a beautiful thought. And David takes it one step further. It's not just his soul that should bless the Lord. He says in the last three verses here, bless Yahweh, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless Yahweh, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless Yahweh, all his works and all places of his dominion. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. At this point, David expands outwards and it's not just about his own individual soul blessing the Lord, but he says the whole universe. He calls for the angels of heaven to bless the Lord. Notice how they're described, by the way, those who do his word those who obey his word, those who are ministers who do his will. They are beings who are actively involved in serving the Lord and obeying him. God is so worthy of praise that the most powerful beings in this universe direct their blessings toward him. And if they do so, how much more should we do so? David states it very intimately at the very end, bless Yahweh, O my soul. He expands to the entire universe, to the vast greatness of our God. Bless this Lord, angels, every created being in this universe. And then he zeroes back in on his soul at the end and says, I need to bless this Lord too. You have seen that God is worthy of praise. He is redeemer, forgiver, healer, satisfier. He has provided for us salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. His love for us is as eternal as he is himself. A being so great deserves our praise and worship. He deserves our obedience, our submission to his will. Our life is a flower quickly fading. We are green grass turning brown today. You are not promised tomorrow, but you have right now. Take the time that the Lord has given you and bless his holy name. Let's pray. Bless your name, O Yahweh. Forgiver, healer, redeemer, satisfier. May the angels in heavens bless you. May the students at Cairn bless you. I pray that you would help us to be obedient to your will to fear you each and every day for however long you've given us, Lord. And that one day we can continue to get this glimpse, maybe a, perhaps a clearer glimpse of what it means that you have loved us from everlasting to everlasting. Lord, I pray that you would be with the students now, that as they go today, their hearts, their minds, their very souls would be focused on the great God that loves them.